Welcome to our podcast. Listen freely and of your own will. You're listening to a bonus episode of From Page to Scream, a podcast where we compare our favourite horror books to their on-screen adaptations. For the last three episodes, we've been taking a deep dive into Bram Stoker's Dracula and discussing how it differs from the 1931 Universal movie starring Bela Lugosi and Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 adaptation starring Gary Oldman. To hear more episodes on Dracula in which we cover the classic 1958 Hammer Horror version starring Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and 1922's Nosferatu, the very first unofficial adaptation of Stoker's novel, then head over to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash from page to screen podcast, where for just $6 a month you can access our monthly bonus episodes. We've currently got two episodes available on Patreon, and we'll be talking even more Hammer Horror next month when we discuss The Curse of Frankenstein. But before we move on to all things Frankenstein and Mary Shelley, we're not quite done with Dracula just yet. As we mentioned in our previous episode, in 2009, the Stoker Estate produced an official Dracula sequel entitled Dracula the Undead, and then in 2018, a prequel called Dracul. Both of these were co-authored by Bram Stoker's grandnephew, Dacre Stoker, who is joining us today to discuss all things Dracula. Dacre, welcome to From Page to Scream. Well, Chris, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. It's uh, always fun to chat Dracula, especially getting on with uh, 2024, isn't it? Here oh, we go. absolutely. What a way to start the year. And um, it feels only right to, to follow our sort of three episode deep dive into Dracula, which which totaled over five hours in the end. And I think we, we came away still feeling like we'd only just scratched the surface. Um, but we talked so much uh, about the book. We didn't get into a great uh, lot of detail about Bram Stoker, the man and, and his life and his influences. And obviously, uh, uh, as his great grandnephew, we were hoping you might be able to enlighten us. Well, I'm I'm in, I'm happy to do that. That's what I spend a lot of my time doing. I, I sort of find it's it's a bit of my family duty. To, <laughs> Absolutely, uh, yeah. Well, to to help people understand who the creator was, you know, when his yeah. creation um, out outlives him, mm. out, outshines him, um, you know, and more people in the world know Dracula than they do my great granduncle Bram Stoker. Yes. So, you know, part of this mm. is is part of what I like to do. So, mm. so let me give you. I'll kind of get started with this. Bram was one of seven children, uh, born. He was born in 1847, just outside of Dublin, Ireland. He was the third of seven, and he started uh, in a very auspicious way, being a very sickly child, and wasn't expected to live. So wow. he got off to a pretty poor start, and and in 1847. In Ireland, which was known as Black 47, it wasn't a great time for anyone to be born, let alone live. Yet a sickly child, they had, they were suffering from a lot of disease brought on by potato famines, cholera epidemics. So here was young Bram Stoker in Clontar for the first seven years of his life, pretty much infirmed. Uh, some accounts we've got that he was invalid. We really don't know what the the il illness was, but. You know, he whatever it was, he was lucky to survive. And I've looked deeply into this, Chris and Tara, about what kind of illness you could have as a child and yet recover yeah. um, as he did at age seven. And then 10 years later at 17, he was a champion all-round athlete at Trinity. So I think it was something, and I've checked with uh, doctors who specialize in old Victorian illnesses, something sort of like um, respiratory allergies or uh, serious asthma that whatever the 
the the, the um, allergen was, uh, I think it's mold or mildew, mm. when they moved to a drier environment, a bit, a bit away from Clontarf, that he and his exercise regime started, that he recovered. Mm. So That's, here was so a, here was a guy yeah. that was very yeah very aware and close to death himself, and during that time, as rich of the history of Irish folklore and superstition, I am convinced uh, that his mother and his nanny had to keep him occupied, had to keep yeah. him entertained. They educated him by telling him all these stories. We have record of one story in particular that was a true story that Bram's mother told him about her experiences at the age of 14, 1832, when she survived the cholera epidemic in Sligo. And she observed people being misdiagnosed and buried prematurely and crawling out of the mass grave. Oh, wow. So oh, imagine that obviously made an impact, didn't it? Well, yeah. I, I, th I really think it did. And then you put on top of that, one of the things you guys had asked me about is the rich folklore of fairies, banshees, changelings, yes. pukas, their own versions of vampires in Ireland. It just makes total sense that this young boy, you know, grew up with this in his headspace. And uh, even though he didn't leave us a, an autobiography, he did leave us little snippets. And one piece that he wrote in the book that he wrote about Henry Irving, personal reminiscence of Henry Irving, he actually talks a little bit about himself. And he says, in my babyhood, I used to be, you know, he mentions being sick for seven years, but I had many experiences and many stories that became fruitful in their kind in later years. So I am convinced what he's saying in a very sort of understated way, the things that happened to me, the things that I heard were fruitful later on, helped him when he was writing Dracula about wow. creatures coming out of the grave, coming back to life. Oh, undoubtedly. And the things that you hear and read at that age, they, ju they just seep in there, don't they? And um, it, it, this is really fascinating, actually, because well, I was saying to Tara just before we started recording that um, most of the biographical detail that I sort of, in inverted commas, knew about Bram Stoker actually comes from uh, the novel that you co-authored, co Dracul. Uh, and I always wondered how much of it was was based in fact, and it actually seems like quite quite a substantial amount, but we'll, obviously we'll come to your books later on, but I, that, that's so interesting to me to hear that he really was a sickly child well yeah. that, 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 that is what I, jd and i tried to do is you know i i tried to get all the facts right creating a timeline people he came up you know came up against he came up with people that helped him yeah what the doctors were in the family and and the conditions that he had so i'll just i'll just scoot a, a little bit along though because absolutely not only yeah. you know do you want to know about who bram was and, and what condition he had but how some of the things in his life got woven into the fabric of Dracula. And so the next big thing was when he went off to Trinity, he became very involved in the philosophical society and historical society, drama, debating, and he got a master's in mathematics. You know, he was an all round athlete. And when you dissect those things I just mentioned, each and every one of them pops up in Dracula somewhere. The whole philosophy, you know, about good versus evil, uh, shades of shades of good and evil, that sort of thing, faith yeah. and God and so on. And then the historical elements. I mean, everything he put in that story, you know, all led to the date 1893 to have historical uh, events that lined up with his story. So he was very aware, I am convinced, that he was trying to write a book that seemed real. Yes. So he based it on on real things mm -hmm. that he was doing. Now, that's not to say Bram Stoker. I'm not coming out and saying he <laughs> believed in vampires. 
but he believed that people believed in them. And so yes, he was going yeah. to capitalize on that. And and that's the key, isn't it? To I sort of so, yeah. understand your audience. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the... he had those, he had those formulaic experiences, didn't he, as a child to be able to kind of inform the realism of his writing, I think. Yeah, that, that's right. And as, as again, he then went on to become a stage manager. And when you're a stage manager for a theater, let alone the famous Sir Henry Irving, mm -hmm. you need to know your audience. You need to mm -hmm. know what is going to push the buttons, what's going to get bums in the seats. And and if, if your listeners don't know it, they just don't go and get a, a script and, and, and act it out. They go and modify the scripts to, you know, suit the the, the strengths and weaknesses of the of the of the players. Uh, of what the, the the hot buttons were at the time of the audiences, and we'll get onto that a little bit later. But that's the that's the sensitivity that he had to his surroundings. Um, in addition, there's one more very interesting factor mm. um, about Bram's personal life that woven in Dracula, and that is he became a clerk in the Petty Sessions legal department, and then he became an inspector of ah. the clerks all over Ireland. So he had to travel. Now, fig, you know, listeners, figure out where this comes out in the novel. He had to travel by train, by carriage to different <laughs> places <laughs> through yeah. Ireland, going yeah. to many of the 33 different counties, checking on all the legal aspects that the other clerks were doing. And it's just like Jonathan Parker going to Count Dracula's castle by way of trains and carriages to do to consummate all the legal transaction for the count oh. to buy all his houses. So again, so semi-autobiographical Bram throws himself in as Jonathan Harker so that's fascinating that's that's why I I love telling people like yeah. like you guys and your listeners about his life because it does come out in the novel it, you do see a bit of Bram in many places yeah I, that kind of goes with Jonathan Harker doesn't it being a man of maps and a man of borders and a man of traveling here there and everywhere absolutely and you think of also in some degrees there's a little bit maybe excessive Bram legalities in the novel when he has to talk about all the legalities of transferring <laughs> the 50 yeah. boxes of dirt when they arrive in Whitby to get transferred to the train and so on and all the land transactions. And then there's even a, a, a few pages where when Mrs. Westerner dies, there's this whole um, uncovering of her will and how complex yes. that was legally. So again, it's an authentic move it's it's a it's a move by Bram to create authenticity maybe details that the reader just dismisses but it is again his effort to show this is how things were done back in the day absolutely and it's like an illusion as well isn't it we've talked about this on our, our discussion of, of the book itself you know, the fact that it's presented in diary entries and ship's logs and newspaper cuttings it presents it as real as a, as a found thing and all that extra detail that you mentioned, it goes toward kind of weaving that spell of basically making this feel like something that actually happened that you are being presented with as fact. And it's so skillfully done. Yeah, it's, it is, it's something that Bram did himself as the mm -hmm. theater manager, write a lot of letters. He kept his own diary slash journal. You know, he did write some newspaper articles himself. And as Tara asked earlier about maps, he did find maps in the London Library. I've since been involved in that uh, discovery and found the books that he used in his research. Wow. And they all had very accurate maps yeah. of the regions of Transylvania. They had the Baedeker Guide to show exactly where the trains went, the schedules they were on. There's one more little piece I just want to mm. mention because I haven't mm, told this to, to many people. Um, 
And it's an influence that's very, very interesting. People talk about Oscar Wilde um, and the fact that Bram stole, you know, Florence, <laughs> Florence. away. But, you know, there, there was, yes, they were involved. Who knows if they were really um, engaged. And, and yes, Bram did, you know, win her over. But the bigger influence in the Wilde family was actually Lady Jane Wilde. She wrote a book called Ancient Legends of Ireland in 1887, and it was in Bram's personal library at home. And wow. he started researching Dracula in 1890. Yeah. So there's a piece in here, and let me just let me just read this to you because it's a recent discovery I made since I've started buying copies of books that was in Bram's library so I could read them oh, and figure wow. out what, what was he aware of. And it said, in Transylvania, again, this is in Lady Jane Wilde's book about Ireland, in Transylvania, legends and superstitions, of which Madame Gerard has recently given an interesting record, many will be found identical with the Irish. But the Romanians are a mixed race, Greek, Slav, Teuton, Gypsy, and many of their superstitions are dark and gloomy, especially <laughs> those relating to vampires, wolves, and terrible demons, evil spirits, and fearful witches. Wow. So I love it. I, I think it. we we've got to give the Wild family, Lady Jane Wild, some credit yeah. for directing Bram to the book by Emily Gerard, the Scottish lady who wow. we all know wrote the book Land Beyond the Forest and gave Bram very specific details about that vampirism and so on. Isn't That's that cool? Absolutely incredible. And what's interesting, uh, just going back to something you said earlier about he may not have believed in vampires, but he believed that people believed in them. And it, it brings me back to a line that, that we focused on in, in the novel right at the beginning when Jonathan Harker first arrives. And there's the Romanian woman who insists on him taking the crucifix. And, he, and she says, for your mother's sake. And I think that that's we, that really leapt out at us, and we, we kind of it speaks to so much about the idea of folklore and superstition. And I'm again, I'm sort of fascinated by the idea of a young Bram Stoker traveling around Ireland, much like Jonathan Harker, uh, in a place that may not have been Transylvania, but a place that, as you mentioned, is sort of rich in its own folklore and superstitions, and and that he 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 channels that so well. And I know that that's something that uh, is very close to Tara's heart. It is, yeah, incredibly close to my heart. And obviously, you know, sort of having the discussion about Irish people and being a very proud Irish person myself, I just wanted to ask you, to what extent do you think that the folklore and mythology of Bram's native island inspired his writing? I mean, obviously, we've sort of touched on a little bit of the mythology, but do you think you could expand on that from your knowledge? Well, I mean, yeah, first of all, it's a great question. And the basis for my answer um, uh, you know, unfortunately, is limited because what we have firsthand from Bram is limited to the 125 pages of notes that he kept and now live in the Rosenbach Museum. Luckily, Robert Bassang and Elizabeth Miller have have transcribed the notes. They've made comments on the notes. Uh, I've used them myself in 25th anniversary of, of uh, annotated version of Dracula to let the reader understand this this whole issue what you're asking and is what inspired Bram where exactly did he get some of these thoughts but I have to override that a little bit and say I believe Tara there are things that he did not need to write down because they were so commonplace in his in his mind it was in his world as a young boy so there's not a mention 
in the notes of banshees, changelings, pukas, um, any of the sort of the Irish specific names, the dare do, the avertact. He didn't need to write those down. They were already in between his ears, so to speak. Yeah. But I think what happened was when he was doing his research and found this book by Lady Jane Wilde, and then you will see if 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 you know you get into the the, the breadth of the things that I do publish in my uh, Dracula annotated for the one twenty fifth and also Dracul J D Barker and I have pulled in some of the existing folklore that we believe he was very aware of that was already in his sphere um, because the Count Dracula himself has similar attributes to the vampire traits that he read in the book by Emily Gerard, he didn't need to really sway from that. In his notes, we see four pages of traits that he pulled out of Land Beyond the Forest and an essay, Transylvanian Superstitions. But since they're already so familiar, as Lady Jane Wilde said, to the Irish and so similar, that it just sort of compounded the fact that here they are. And it, to me, it was probably an aha moment for Bram without having to write them down. So, so I think they are, they are there in Dracula, but he didn't have to name them. He didn't have yeah. to write it. It's, it's already. It's just it's implicit. Already, yeah, it's implicit. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. In terms of, um, um, and, of and the other piece of it is, of, of when you analyze both of the reason for these folklore, they're very similar as many folklore are around the world. They're cautionary yeah. tales, mm. right? And they're also trying to explain the unexplained. As people are becoming enlightened and sometimes disillusioned with strict religion, mm -hmm. which will tell them this is how you behave, this is how you act, and you'll have a good afterlife, essentially, superstition and folklore do the same thing. And if and if there is not something like a organized uh, church in your town or or a priest, you know, there may be a shop. Yeah. There may be a witch. There may be a folklorist. They will tell you the same thing. Oh. Chris and Tara and Dacre, you must live your life this way and then you'll mm. have a good afterlife. It's cautionary and it's all That's the so same true. stuff. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Um, in terms of what you were saying about how, you know, you've uh, reproduced uh, some of, of Bram's original papers and original notes. One of the things that I loved in Dracula the Undead um, was the section at the end where it had uh, his handwritten notes of all the characters in the story. And there's that, that wonderful... Um, Part where you can see the character coming to life on the page where Count Wampir becomes oh, Count yeah. Dracula. <laughs> and I, you know, you mentioned this idea that, um, you know, his creation has almost overshadowed him as an author and as a man. And and that idea that more people know the name Count Dracula than, than know Bram Stoker, which is a sort of mixed thing in, in some ways. But I mean, just to have created something so iconic and so famous that has resonated with so many people, it's a shame in a way that he didn't live to see quite how huge his creation became. But do you think, I like to, maybe this is me being fanciful, but when I see those words written down with count underlined, I love to imagine that he had this moment of of almost... I don't know, call it prophecy or, or whatever, but a moment of thinking, yes, I've created something special here. Do you, do you think that? You know, I, I, you, you've, you've touched a nerve with me because every time <laughs> I look at that page, um, I do get sort of the goosebumps. And I think yeah. this is for, for the, for the listeners here, this is a page where he lists his characters and it's, and it is, I, I think the first page 
Um, and he's, he does it two other times in the 125 pages where he refines all of the characters in the book. And the, and the final version of this characterization page has only about half of the characters, but the ones that we see appear in the book. So what Chris is getting at is this one page where he, he has the word count and then W-A-M-P-Y-R-E, Wampir or Vampir, which is an Austrian uh, name for a vampire. And so that makes many of us believe, and, and I share this with other scholars, that he was thinking of setting his novel in Styria or a province of Austria like Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu mm. uh, set Carmilla. That, that's, you know, it was an established story, fellow Irishman, you know, yeah. okay, he's already got people believing vampires are there. Let's just carry on with that. Mm -hmm. But then he goes to Whitby ah. and in Whitby <laughs> uh, near where Tara lives, uh, he goes into the library and sees a book by William Wilkinson and actually sees a reference to Dracula in the Valachian language. Mm -hmm means devil. Now, Wallachia is a province in Transylvania, excuse me, in Romania, just a little bit north of Transylvania. So what Brand did was he took a Wallachian prince who he saw in this book mentioning he's referred to as devil and simply moved him to Transylvania, which is where Emily Gerard did all her research. So Fantastic. he was a master of sort of merging things and merging yeah. characters. He merged castles. But to get back to your original question, it, it, it makes me sort of almost share an aha moment with Bram yeah. when he not only writes at one time, Chris, on that page, but you probably recognize he writes it three times yeah. on the page. It's... And and in bold ink, he underlines Count Dracula. And that, to me, is that great moment yeah. that, sadly, I, I don't really know. Um, yeah. You know, we know he died in 1912. It didn't hit the stage until 22, didn't get big until mm. 24, and so on. Movies, 31. There were some reviews about the book that had come out that were favorable, but certainly not the enormity of of how the book gained popularity as a result of the success on stage and on screen, uh, which helped it spread all over the world. So yeah. sadly, I think he, he might have taken that one to the grave, Chris, and uh, hopefully his spirit is, is picking up the vibes that we send him with uh, I, all the I, good things we all think about. I sincerely hope so. You know, I hope the, so. The fact that, you know, some friends of mine came back from a weekend in Whitby recently and came back with a Dracula fridge magnet, you know, and you think, I wish he could have known that it would become that synonymous, you know, that as we discussed Whitby as Dracula town, I'm a, you know, I'm a lifelong fan of, 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 gothic and and horror and it comes from family holidays to whitby as a child and you know becoming absolutely transfixed with vampires and that applies to so many hundreds of thousands of people well we've got to give a shout out to tara's backyard because i think uh the three of us are all in agreement and hopefully your listeners would get a chance to to grace whitby with their presence at some point it oh, is yes. a, a really special place and uh, I've, I've been there now i think my count is up to 10 times mm. and i've started taking tours there um, i'll actually be taking one there the the 24th to the 28th of, of may because we try to straddle uh may 26th the 100th or the wow. 127th anniversary yeah. of dracula so we have a nice fun dinner uh, with some of my friends uh, gary and allison cheeseman who were the, the consummate cosplayers uh, and, and lots of others come out and join us for those things. But just walking around the town, yeah. I pick up the vibe of Bram Stoker there, the summer of 1890, 
He's staying on Royal Crescent and he wanders around. He gets a feel of the vibe. He meets people in the Coast Guard. He meets fishermen. He hears stories of the Bagash. He hears stories mm -hmm. of the driverless coach. He hears yeah. about the Dimitri, turns it into the Demeter. He goes mm -hmm. up to Whitby Abbey. You know, all that vibe and the atmosphere that, that he discovered in Dracula is still there to this day if you know where to look and you Absolutely. can kind of go early in the morning or late in the night when all the tourists aren't out. When it's uh, gray. It's, it's Yeah, those are the best, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the gray days, but I'll, I'll also tell you this and see what Tara thinks. I think it's called the the, inver the inversion when the hot air and the cold air flip mm. and you get mm. the sea mist coming in. Yeah. And I've been there a few times. It is eerie when that sea mist rolls in and you're standing up on top of the near St. Mary's church and, and it just starts to envelop you. And it, and it, uh, and then I was just outside filming a little spot outside Whitby Abbey. And the whole thing was like, as Bran mentions, the souls of the undead coming and looking for peace. Yes. Coming, uh, you know, the ghostly currents. It's so Ooh. incredible. Kara, have you experienced something like that yourself? Are you aware I, of all that? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, Whitby is just a really special place anyway, but there is an energy to it that is unlike any other seaside town that I've ever visited before. Yeah. And I think what you were saying about, you know, sort of um, these eras of brand being available now, I think, um, is it the Quayside restaurant in Whitby? Um, it yeah. used to be Whitby yeah. Town Library where... Yeah. Um, obviously sort of you know discovered the word Dracula there and it it's just incredible to think about the legacy um, of Whitby and, and Chris and I have said several times haven't we that we feel that Coppola's Dracula has done Whitby so dirty by Outrageous. not mentioning it's it's so integral to the whole story and you know yeah. you can feel the love that Bram had mm. for Whitby resonating off those pages yeah it's too it's too bad that that did not get you know, a name check or, or a site, um, you, you know, but, you know, you can't have everything in all these yeah. films, but you know, <laughs> and some true. of them were filmed there. So that, that is a good yeah. piece, but I, I highly recommend people to go there. And, and oh. I, I've got to tell you this story. My first time going there was filming a documentary with a Canadian company uh, called real vampires, R E E L as in the uh -huh, real very good, film yeah. vampires. And and it was it was you know asking me about you know the influence of of the town on Bram. Yeah, we drove from London, all you know the film crew, myself, mm -hmm. all in this sort of van, all squished in there. So we drove all the way from London, and we got there late at night. And um, I, I mentioned to the guys that I, a friend of mine, John Stokoe, who was then the editor of the Whitby Gazette, wanted to mm. meet us for a pint at the um, at the Duke of York Inn when we oh, got in town, wonderful. so he could. He was going to be sort of our location guy mm. and make arrangements for the filming at Keyside, as Tara said, or in the Abbey or so on. So he was our sort of local fixer. And we 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 had all of our stuff stowed away. We finally got in. We were tired, but it's like, come on, guys, we've got to walk across the bridge and head over here. I took them to the Duke of York Inn. And when we got to the base of the 199 steps where John was waiting for us, they had a big, um, those that yellow police tape, do not oh, enter. Yeah. And and we looked at each other, go, what, what's the matter? And John, being an editor of the newspaper, said, well, I, I picked up on the scanner. There's been a suicide. Somebody mm -hmm. up at the top had had jumped over the cliff. So it was it was eerie and sad. But imagine I had already prepped the guys 
in all of our discussions about talking about suicides suicide being graves, buried yeah. in the graves yeah. And, yeah. and the open graves because of suicide, you know, all, yeah. all of this and, and how Bram had connected to that and had Captain Swales talking to Lisi and Mina about the suicide grave. And we know the connection between suicides and vampires and mm -hmm, so on. Mm -hmm. And my gosh, here we get here. And it's wow. like truth is stranger than oh, that's fiction. So, so eerie. Can I ask it you? It was Dacus, somber and eerie at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd love to know. So presumably, um uh being from Canada, you will have read Dracula and and read about Whitby before actually visiting the town. What was that? Because I was because oh, yeah. for me, because I, <laughs> I I grew up knowing Whitby and then finally and being aware of Dracula as as a concept and as a, a film character, when I finally read the novel it was like oh what a wonderful description of this town that i know and love and he's captured it so well but from your perspective that must be like i don't know going to middle earth or something <laughs> in, in the sense of it's exactly how he describes it what, what was that what did that feel like going for the first time well j just as you said i mean i i went there as a as a as a kid you know with a jaw wide open go oh my god this is this is this is where they stayed. You know, R R Bram stayed at Royal Crescent, and we've got Lucy and Mina and Western yeah. at at the Crescent. And oh my God, where's the Khyber Pass? And where's the steps? Oh, it's yeah. right here. And and okay, so it looks like it would have taken a little longer to actually walk from Royal Crescent, cross the swing bridge, and through the market and up the steps. But okay, that's that's what happens. But it's it's all right there. And then yeah. uh, e even to the point where you look at the Salvation Army bandstand, where he mm -hmm. mentioned that there was music playing. If you're on one side of town, you can hear it, but you can't hear it from the other side. And then the clock. I mean, all, all these even subtle little things he had bang on. And mm -hmm. then, of course, probably the most famous is the wreck of the Dimitri that mm -hmm. Bram turned into the wreck of the Demeter because of the account that he got from the Coast Guard, um, Coast Guardman, Mr. Petherick. So... I was looking for those little clues, yeah, Chris, while I was experiencing, you know, what was there. And then you see things like the bench that the the, the Dracula Society has put out there. Yes, that bench wasn't the there bench. when Bram was there, but that area <laughs> was there. So it's pretty yeah. darn close. Yeah. It may not oh, be the so... bench, but it's the spot. Yeah. It's, exactly. Exactly. So... Like if we think about the cultural legacy of Bram and Whitby, as we've just been sort of discussing, obviously many people are familiar with Count Dracula and Renfield as characters without actually having read the book. So do you think it's important that Bram Stoker's actual words and not just his creations are remembered? And if so, what can the Stoker family do to keep the book in print and in circulation for future generations? Well, I'm, I'm going to ask answer the second part first so the book is in public domain it's been there since 1962 so the stoker family uh, has no control over who decides to publish it which is actually a good thing because we're not a publishing company <laughs> um, as you know i've co-authored a prequel and a sequel yeah. so that there's there's my contribution to sort of um, keeping the the story alive, and I'm actually working on another one right now. Oh wow! It's the it's the summer that Bram wrote Dracula while he was in Cruden Bay, Scotland. Oh, so that's wow. uh, you know th that'll be another piece in this sort of trilogy of uh, Dracula, the undead, Dracula, oh, and, and Dracula. Wow. So that's that's in the works, and then and and then I'm also working on documentary film and and other graphic novel adaptations. So. 
the family has given me the blessing. You know, Bram does have two great grandsons alive. They're the Bram Stoker estate, and they do benefit from his um, intellectual property, although all the books are already in public domain, as I said. So do I think, um, you know, people should be aware of Bram as a writer and, and his other words? And, and the answer is, obviously, yes. But here here we go. This this will get us into another section of our, of our <laughs> chat, and that is... As people have read the novel over the years and been influenced in the same way that Bram was influenced by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, mm -hmm. possibly J. Malcolm Reimer, John Polidari, and you know, Dracula on stage and, and other things, not Dracula, but vampires on stage, and in Emily Gerard and, and, and Transylvanian superstitions, it makes sense that other authors, playwrights, and screenwriters have been influenced by Bram and may not keep his exact words alive, but they keep his work, they keep his inspiration, they keep his creation yeah. alive, but go in different directions. And, and you know, we can mm -hmm. call it all sorts of things. Reimagining is what first comes to mind, um, a, a, an homage. But what he's done, you know, is kind of stoke the fire, so to speak, mm. to, to give people an idea of, the whole concept that he didn't invent the vampire, but he no. he capitalized on something that was already you know in in people's mind uh, as potentially real and scared the heck out of folks. <laughs> but he's taken it to new lengths, and as other folks do the same thing, that is a good thing. And yeah. and I and I like to you know you know remind people that where a lot of these traits come from, why does Transylvania have such a mm -hmm. reputation for you know, being chock full of vampires. Yes, it has to do with Emily Gerard, but it wouldn't have had as much to do with with vampires unless Bram Stoker wrote the book and set it there. Uh, and then lots of other movies have have continued that, but they've also set vampires in other places as well. Yes. But we still keep going back to Transylvania because it is a <laughs> mysterious place and it has wonderful castles and I do lead tours there and so on. So we do try to demystify this. So you know, film, stage adaptation, tours, comics, Halloween festivals, all these things do help proliferate mm. Bram's words. And the more people analyze the story Dracula, the more they seem to think, oh, there's more here than meets the eye. Let's look into this. Definitely. And, and so you see a lot of master's um, dissertations, mm -hmm. theses and PhD students and so on that are delving into the many little bits and pieces of the novel that people think was what Bram was saying. <laughs> uh, that gives it lots of depth as well. It really so, does, yeah. And it's so ripe yeah, for interpretation because there's, there's, there's it, it is so right. much nuance in there that I, mm. a lot of it can be read multiple different ways. And I think in, in some respects that makes the text quite ageless. It makes it complex. Um, yeah. and, and it's like, I, I call it, it's like an onion. The, yeah. you, can, you can read it at the outside level and get well entertained mm. it's not an easy read you've got to you've got to concentrate you've got to focus you know it's not like a, a, a nowadays book where you can just you know don't have to think true but yeah. if you want to think and you want to pay attention to the nuance you can get a really interesting glimpse Definitely. into what was going on in the victorian era during well, the late 1890s 
Well, massively. And that's something that we touched on in our discussion of the book is this idea that, you know, it's over 100 years old now and people see it as old fashioned because because it, indeed it is. And yet it, it was such a contemporary novel and it's about kind of modernity and and British Empire versus kind of the human soul and, and folk tradition and superstition. And it's so, you know, and that will always be relevant, I think. But in terms of those folkloric elements, like you were saying, he sort of capitalized on that, but also we were saying that even though a lot of the, the concepts in Dracula weren't creations of Bram Stoker's, he's coalesced them somehow to almost single-handedly create what we know of today as the vampire genre. He's put everything in, in one place. And I mentioned Middle Earth earlier because I'm a big Tolkien fan, and that was something we touched on too, is that in a strange way, I find Dracula kind of similar to the Lord of the Rings in terms of like, you know, elves and dragons and, and dwarves existed in folklore, but kind of Tolkien put them together in a way that kind of invented the modern fantasy genre. And I was really interested by something that... Um, the chair of the Tolkien Society said about how important it is for them to keep the books in circulation in in this age of, of you know adaptations and now Amazon have the rights to it and everything. And um, I had an interesting chat with him about the the Daily Dracula because I thought that was a really interesting way of kind of engaging a kind of modern audience with this kind of quite old-fashioned in some respects texts and like literally sending out the diary entries on on you know to match the calendar year because it kind of it's a way of kind of bringing it up to date without actually altering any of its essence and it kind of again goes back to that idea of how clever it is as as um a body of work that's presented as a found thing and i, ju I just love that concept of, of kind of bringing dracula into the digital age if you know what i mean yeah and um, I think that's one of the most brilliant things I've seen is um, is somebody who, who created that concept of Dracula Daily. The book is already written this way. Uh, so as you say, they didn't have to change anything. All they had to do was rearrange it a little bit and repackage it, much like Bram did repackaging the whole idea of the vampire um, in myth. He's turned it into a realistic a possibility of a realistic creature yeah. coming into the backyards and the back houses <laughs> of, of London. So it's absolutely brilliant. And and in a way, it's a testimony to today um, how people like things hand delivered to them. We 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 have yeah. things on our phone, we've got the little mm. ticker tickers uh, strip below the news media on sports you're watching one football game and then there's there's you know 20 scores that come up down below we want these things spoon fed to us yeah. and and I, whoever whoever created that idea is absolutely brilliant yeah and, and when you also also think about similar things are done and, and i've been working on them with graphic novel yes one of bram one of my favorite stories of bram's um, and we'll talk about Dracula's guest later because that mm. was actually part of the novel that I discovered. But uh, a story that Bram wrote called The Squaw that Chris McCauley and I changed it into The Virgin's Embrace because it's not very politically correct to <laughs> say call anything The Squaw these mm. days. But we had Jessica Martin, a, a Doctor Who and stage actress from London, uh, do the artwork for our version of Bram Stoker's um, The Virgin's Embrace. And that had great circulation because people could see something in imagery uh, rather than having to read a not a very well-known short story so that's another way um of besides delivering things in your email box of, of visually bringing things as as well as you know obviously stage adaptation screen adaptation shorts and so on get 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 people delivered the info they need and yeah. create better awareness of um what what his stories were all about
Wow, that's incredible. So we've obviously sort of touched on books and adaptations. Um, do you have a personal favourite Dracula film that you'd like to share? Maybe we can share ours. Well, <laughs> it's a, it, you know, it's a tough question. And, and I got to frame that by saying I'm very, very aware of 1922 Nosferatu, you know, kind of got things going, although there seems to be a Hungarian adaptation prior to that Dracula halala that Dr. Gary Rhodes has discovered, and maybe wow. even one in Russia that seems to be kicking around that no one's ever found. But oh. <laughs> so I think, you know, formally we can say 1922, uh, um, the, the pirated version of, yes. of Dracula, that um, to make a long story short, you know, was, you know, Florence Stoker did use the the the, the British, um, the, the Incorporated Society of Authors to help her win a case mm. to prove that this was an unauthorized adaptation. And, and there was no money. It changed hands because Prana Films was bankrupt. But nonetheless, she prevailed in the in the judgment. And luckily, the films didn't get destroyed because it's a it's a darn good film. But, it, it you know, it set a precedent, which was good because yeah. as legal as Bram was and the, the lengths he went to to actually protect the dramatic rights of his novel by doing mm. a stage reading just before it came out needed to be recognized so we yeah. put that aside it, it's it's a good one but then then you fast forward to 1931 and because that's the first talking horror film uh bell lugosi who goes from hungary which was part of what we now know as transylvania at the time um you know it's it's a wonderful film with all its little you know quirks and isms with you know possums running oh, around it's or, incredible so on yeah. I mean, it is incredible, but it's dated, obviously. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, I put that out there as I, I like it and it's Bella and he's wonderful and he's the guy we think of. But yeah. then I also have to say, and, and I put them all on a podium, Tara, all together uh, at, at like the Olympic Games, one, two and three, but they're all the same. 1958, uh, Christopher Lee and Dracula, he's, you know, he set the mark, you know, for a more modern Dracula, oh, which yeah. I absolutely love his his portrayal of it. And then, you know, to move ahead to the 92 Coppola, um, Gary Oldman had the benefit of obviously modern uh, costumes, uh, a little more technology, although there wasn't a ton of CGI, but there was, you know, more uh, sophistication I, yeah. in filmmaking. I love the in-camera so, well, effects in that film. They're so, yeah. yeah. Those three are, are my big three. And, and you, yeah. you, you'd have to really hold me down with a <laughs> knife to my throat to get me to say which of those is yeah. better because they're they're a, a all different layers, aren't they? But I love them they all. Are. I I yeah yeah. So I am an incurable romantic. Yeah. I I it's I don't know if it's one of my worst traits or my best traits. <laughs> um. So Coppola's Dracula is my all-time favorite. I just adore it. I really really love it. But most people who know me will know that my first ever crush was on Christopher Lee mm -hmm. as a kid as Dracula. So yeah. Make of that what you will. Well, let, let me ask you this, <laughs> uh, and maybe Chris and I could be the jury. Uh, I, mean, I, I agree with you. The, the romantic side of the 92 Coppola film is very interesting and was a, was a, a needed, adapt, a needed um, uh, ch change. Mm -hmm. But why do you think it, it survived and why do you think it did well as a romance when you consider it was not a romantic adaptation of or the book wasn't romantic at all but no. jim hart the screenwriter decided to make it one so why don't you advocate for it as why just so we can get that out and we can discuss it 
I think, I mean, obviously the casting helped, didn't it? Because you've got this beautiful young cast. You've got this incredible sort of romantic gothic imagery. Um, and I think, you know, romance sells, love sells. And I think if you combine love and sex and death, that's a pretty irresistible, you know, sort of thing, isn't it, to have? Um, so, yeah. No, I, th I think you're right. And I, I think just to, to, to set the record so people understand, Jim Hart created his own mythology mm. using ex existing myth that when Vlad Dracula, Vlad the Impaler, the, the real Vlad the Impaler was fighting the Ottomans, one of the tactics the Ottomans used was to, to shoot an arrow through the window of the fortress where his wife was holding up with everyone else and said, your husband is dead. If you don't surrender, you know, we're, 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 you're gonna have this horrible death. Okay. So surrender. And she goes ahead and commits suicide. She jumps into the Argus River. And we know that suicide is a mortal sin. Vlad is out fighting for Christianity. He comes back from his fighting. Where's my wife? Oh, she's committed suicide. Well, we have to have a proper burial. Oh no, she can't do that because she created a mortal sin. So then he rebels against the church who he's been fighting for, stabs the cross, starts to bleed. He drinks the blood and he goes through this conversion as he's um, reacting against the church and the cross. Mm -hmm. So that is three minutes, spoiler alert, of a movie <laughs> from 1992. So if it spoiled it too bad, you should have seen it already. <laughs> but but that's, that's really what Jim created to then create the backbone of the 92 Coppola film that Dracula is in search of his reincarnated wife yeah. and, and sees her in the image of what Jonathan Harker has in a little picture that he travels with him and goes, oh my God, this Mina Harker, that's mm. the reincarnated version of my wife. And mm. that's how it becomes his search for love. I have crossed oceans of time for you. Oh, and, yes. and that's the love piece, which, mm -hmm. which as, as you just said, Love sells. And if you look at 92, a good friend of mine, John Browning, professor here in, near Atlanta, wrote a book called Dracula and Visual Media. And he lists all these 700 movies up until the book's already about seven or eight years old um, that have a Dracula as a, as a citation. And he, and he mentions what's happened in vampire movies. And up until 1992, you know, there was a bit of a lull and you, you had all the earlier movies with Christopher Lee where the censors were quite tough on blood. It wasn't mm -hmm. until 58 where they could show fangs and blood in the mouth, but they got away with the females wearing very sheer negligees. Yeah. And and they could get away with, you know, you know, a lot of you know, buxom ladies, sheer negligees, mm -hmm. but no blood. No, so it hammer. was a little yeah, <laughs> yeah, they they could get away with that, but when the 90s came around, if you're going to put a vampire film on when other films could be showing risque material and more violence, the vampire film had to be more than just boobs and blood. It mm. had to have some substance to it. Yes. And as Tara said, the love element um, that that needed and, and suspense and mystery had to be involved. So that's and Jim and I have done actually talks together. That's what he said. That's why I interpreted Bram Stoker's book that way. And that's why they called it Bram Stoker's Dracula. 
um, even though it's not. But <laughs> I, th I think it hit the mark well for 92. Yeah, certainly. And like aesthetically and in terms of, you know, the fact that they don't condense uh, Quincy and Jack and Arthur into one character as other adaptations have done. And I know I think Hammer swap Mina and Lucy, all, the, all these strange things, you know, in terms of the, the plot beats and the characters, it's so almost a beat for beat uh, recreation of the story. And yet, you know, tonally and stylistically, it is a completely different thing. But also, mm. I feel like nothing exists in a vacuum. And I think Christopher Lee is an important part of the journey from, well, Max Schreck even to Gary Oldman, because he was such a charismatic and kind of, uh, you know, like Tara said, your first crush. Like, um, mm. he was he was the first. I mean, no offense to Bella Lugosi, but a lot, he was the first sexy Dracula. And and there was suddenly sex appeal uh, in the, the Hammer films. But I think sort of even beyond that, like I think culturally, we all collectively have romanticized the character of Dracula. We have kind of fallen in love with him, with his, I don't know what it is, his, his loneliness, his isolation, his, his otherness. Uh, even, you know, just the raw text alone, even though he isn't explicitly a romantic figure and he is quite monstrous in places, there is still something undeniably romantic about him. And I wanted to ask you about that, Dacre, because I'm sort of skipping ahead here a little bit, but um, in Dracula the Undead, uh, your uh, sequel um, is very much, again, it's, it came out in 2009, but in case anyone hasn't read it, I don't want to spoil it too much. Um, I don't think it's a massive spoiler to say that Dracula's in it, seen as uh, that's the title of the book. <laughs> but uh, he's very much a romantic figure in that novel. And there's some, uh, you know, I, I find it interesting that on the one hand, it's a sequel to Dracula, except it kind of isn't in a way, because within your novel, Bram Stoker is a character who's written a novel called Dracula. And, you know, there's some debate as to how accurate it is. And the Dracula in Dra Dracula the Undead is a very different character. And I wondered what, what inspired that creative decision. Because, again, you, you've given us a much more romantic and sympathetic version of the, the count. Yeah, it, it's, it's really quite easy. Um, but unless you ask, you, will, you won't know. Uh, <laughs> Ian Holt, who I co-authored with, was a screenwriter. Yeah. And uh, much like Tara, he absolutely loved the 92 Coppola film. Mm -hmm. And he had actually written a screenplay as a sequel to the 92 oh, Coppola wow. film. wow. But it never went anywhere. So his concept was, and this is what he came to me with, says, Dacre, do you have any evidence in all the research that you've done that Bram Stoker intended for Dracula to actually live? Mm. And so I had gone into the notes. I'd, I'd been able to see... Uh, information that people have written about the typescript. I hadn't actually seen the typescript when that, when I was writing Dracula, the undead, I saw it prior to Dracula with JD Barker, but I'll, I'll tell you guys now this Bram Stoker originally planned a volcanic eruption at the end of Dracula. And it That's was wild. actually crossed out in the final typescript. And so if you analyze the way the novel ends, Count Dracula being stabbed with a Bowie knife and his mm. throat slit, not mm -hmm. totally decapitated, mm -hmm. no, no garlic, uh, no wooden steak, much yeah. like Van Helsing says you have to do to Lucy. That's the justification that mm. I brought to Ian Holt to say, well, look, it's quite possible that Bram was planning to have him killed off, yeah. off volcanic eruption. 
but it was changed. Mm -hmm. No volcanic eruption, no definitive end. So let's have him come back. Yeah. So ha having him come back justifies a continuation of the story. And what we did was have the child that was born at the end of the mm -hmm. novel. Who, yep, Quincy. And, and, Nina and, and, and the group went back to Transylvania to pay homage to Quincy. They have the, the young child with them. So we wanted to make him old enough mm -hmm. to be able to be the main protagonist in the story, Quincy Harker, who is asking his family what happened way back in those days. He's sort of investigating the scene. And that's the basis for the story. And because in, in 92, the Coppola film was so popular and won a couple of Academy yeah. Awards, it made sense for us to, to change Bram's version of the um, revenant from the grave, not yeah. so attractive and sexy <laughs> Dracula, but I mean, literally jump on board mm -hmm. the, the, the Coppola train and bring him back as something more attractive and yeah. continue that sort of gray area of good and evil mm. and looking mm. for love in, in all the wrong places. So Holt and I did that and it became a big success. However, during all that and after that, I thought, you know, that's great for reimagining Dracula myself. But yeah. in actual fact, I think Bram Stoker really thought that this had to be a horrifying creature that scares the bejesus out of people. Yeah. So let's go back to the original Dracula. So when I approached J.D. Barker to write the prequel, Dracul, mm. that needed to include that original, and I'll use the term badass Dracula, yeah. the real no, original one. And that's Dracula why is a gothic horror novel. Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. why it makes sense as sort of bookends to Bram's Dracula with the yeah. more modern modern stuff later on, even though we did it in the different order. So that that's that's the rationale for for us changing. But I, I want to say one more thing. Having mm. I did a lot of research, uh, and I'm sure you two know this because you talk about novel, you know, onto yeah. sta yeah. onto stage and screen. One of the reasons why Bell Lugosi appeared and actually Edmund um, Burke was the first Dracula that back in the day in 1922 when stage adaptations were were beginning to, to be done for Dracula audiences would never have accepted a, a horrifying looking Dracula the way Bram Stoker described mm. him I've actually taken the description from the novel and brought it to a forensic artist <laughs> and had him draw what it looked like and my god it's 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 really scary yeah and he has a scar on his forehead the entire time <laughs> absolutely from the shovel hard yeah. the shovel so audience would would have not they would have rejected it so it makes total sense when when you see a, the, the one picture of edmund burke in his dinner jacket and then later bell lugosi um not sexy but certainly suave and debonair and then tara's christopher lee being sexy and all the rest you know, in I think seven versions of Dracula, that's why we see that transformation. And the yeah. more the Draculas become humanized, the farther they go away from Bram Stoker's Dracula, they become more human because mm -hmm. people, I think, audiences want to identify with them more and they become more potentially more realistic because the more we learn about them, it's like, okay, yeah, I can, I can see a, a monster coming, but what's mm -hmm. really scary 
is the boy next door or the girl next door that you don't know if you're going to hire yes. as your babysitter yeah. that's going to come and take out your whole family or worse, you know, take out your child and suck their blood. And now you've got a vampire in the house. So that's my brief version of a metamorphosis and yeah. how it's happened. And I had to jump on the bandwagon myself. Yeah. <laughs> otherwise, I'd be left out in the cold. But I loved what you did with the character of uh, Nana Ellen uh, in Dracul in terms of like, you know, who is looking after your child. I don't want to say too much, you know, in case anyone hasn't read read the novel, but it was a really um, you know, Dracula the Undead. It really feels like a sequel to Dracula. You know, you've got the Harkers and you've got Van Helsing, whereas Dracul was such a fantastic almost reinvention. And uh, it really captured that sort of, as I say, that gothic horror tone. Um, but I don't want to say too much, but I, I loved I loved that. No, but, I, but I will tell you this. You know, Nana Ellen was the real nanny of the Stokers. Wow. Um, she <laughs> she went to the Stokers as a as a, a young girl looking for a job. And, you know, with, as I mentioned, seven children, father working as a clerk in, in uh, Dublin Castle, mother had her hands full. And all these kids were coming about a year and a half apart. So uh, Ellen Crone really was the nanny. And, and her name was Ellen Crone. Wow. Oh, absolutely. And and what I've a seen fantastic name. <laughs> I've, I've seen pictures. Um, you know, the my, my cousins, Bram's great grandsons have have had a, a treasure trove of letters and pictures and things, yeah. some of which they donated to Trinity, some of which they sold to Trinity. But when I was doing my research for this, this is this is like strange, guys. There was a picture of Ellen Crone oh, in wow. an envelope. And it was so faded that it looked like someone trying to take a picture, as we know now, of a vampire, you know, where you can't take Whoa. a picture. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah. when, when JD oh and I looked God. at this, it was like, oh, my God, this is yeah. weird. And to make it even weirder, there was another envelope. Because what 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 they, they're kept in these files, and when and they're listed. And you, and you look at all the things you need. You call them up. They bring yeah. them to you in a special room. You've got to have white gloves on, no oh. cameras, nothing. And you open up this thing one after another. There was a picture we pulled out. And then there was these sort of about 20 strands of her hair <gasps> in an envelope. No. And it said, you know, Ellen Crone to Thornley Stoker. Oh, my God. Bram's older brother. And as weird as it sounds nowadays, guys, this is something that the Victorians did. They, they you mm -hmm. know, kept lockets of hair and they kept stuff, weird stuff like that. And I was so tempted to sort of look around to sort oh. of pinch a piece of it, but <laughs> but I, I didn't. I, I just imagine getting caught at Trinity stealing something. There's no way I'd do it. But it was like this is. I, I would, I'd love to have taken it for DNA testing to figure out, you know, who this lady really was. So all wow, all those things that JD and I did the research and the locations. The bog nearby, the castle nearby outside of Clontar, they're all real. Wow. And and we just integrated that into, you know, the minds of storytellers. And that's that's how we came up with all that good stuff. That's incredible. While we're on the subject of, of Dracul, actually, you know, given that we're all about sort of, you know, book to film adaptations, mm. we were just discussing earlier that I believe that Paramount owned the owned the rights to Dracul. Is anything happening with that? Well, they, they bought an option. Right, right. Um it's kind of strange how these things happen. They, they bought an option for it and they renewed the option. It was 18, 18 month option. They renewed it three times. Right. So almost four years. Yeah. And then finally, um, JD and I kept asking our agent, like, what's going, what's on? going on with this? 
you, you know, it's it's it in a way it's nice. You get a check every yeah, 18 yeah. months. But you really want to see your book get made into a film. And over the over the years, they kept sending us, they said, Oh, we're trying somebody else to adapt your story. Mm. And they'd send us, you know, a first chapter or they'd send us a a CV of the person. Oh yeah, that person sounds good. And we look at it. Okay, yeah, sounds good. But I, may, I suggest this. So we got four or five different sort of pitches, even though they didn't have to. But it showed us that something was happening, and then it just went blank. And we found out that, you know, a lot of times these studios have changeovers in their in, in operations and their boards. They've lost interest in Dracul. So we said, well, look, let's take it back. Okay. Or not take it back. We're just not going to renew the option. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's out now again. We have a shopping agreement with with another production company. Because of an indie, I can't say it. Okay, but yeah. Being, but... it, it, the good thing is it's actively being shopped around as a streaming oh, series you know. now, not a feature film. Okay, so essentially watch this space on From Page to Scream for a book-to-screen adaptation of <laughs> Trackall. So, and, and I think I think it would be better, Tara, uh, as a as a streaming series, you know, mm. five or six part. Than a, I mean, I oh, respect yeah. feature films, but so much gets lost, and and a lot of authors. You're so right, yeah. I think so often, would... you know, it, a short story to a film is much more successful because they can really, you know, um, be faithful to what's there, but have room to expand on it. Things like Candyman is a great example of that. Whereas novels, inevitably, if you're trying to condense a 400 page novel into an hour and a half film, things get lost. But in these days mm. of, uh, you know, the, the Netflix uh, miniseries, it's it's a fantastic time for adaptations. Who would you cast uh, as as Bram Stoker in in either well, it's a young Bram in Dracul and, a, and an older Bram in, in Dracula the Undead. But for, for the for the twenty one year old Bram in Dracul, who would who would your perfect uh, actor be for that role? Well, I, I thought about this because I do get asked asked yeah. this a lot in general, and there's a couple of actors that come come to to mind. One is Jamie Dornan um, in the in the Fall in Belfast. Now he's not twenty one years old, but I, I know they could put some makeup on the yeah. guy. But the other one. <laughs> Is, is a guy called Chris Sullivan who played in a series I absolutely love called The Nick after right. the Knickerbocker um, hospital in um, in New York. And and so, yeah, you've got to, I mean, the thing about Dracul is you'd have to have a, 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 an infant, a child, a 21-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think someone like that could could do a great job. Obviously, he's got to, you know, have a kind of a, a athletic body and he's got to yeah. be, you know, have a good, decent Irish mm -hmm. accent. Um, so that that would be that would be my choice. Any of those guys, but you know, again, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not a Hollywood guy. I don't know no. all the people out there around the world <laughs> yeah. who could who could be pulled in. Um, I do want to say one other thing before I forget. Yeah, you mentioned you know about a uh, about how short stories um, can be turned into a mm. you know, decent mm. film. Uh, and and if you can, let's let's just chat for a moment about the last voyage of the Demeter because there's yeah, a we were perfect so example. Yeah. <laughs> Of, of one chapter of Dracula. Yeah. Brand didn't go into too much detail in, in the chapter with the ship's log, <clears throat> but I think it's been turned into a wonderful, old-fashioned, suspenseful horror film. We've not uh, seen without it. A, a, you 
You no, haven't. No. There's, there's so no there were problems. Yeah. yeah, there were problems with the distribution in the UK. And they'd obviously been hyping it up and hyping it up for release. And then it all went to pot. So we've not actually seen it. But I'm hoping that the distribution rights will be resolved at some point. Um, Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, if you're saying it's Im- yeah. amazing, then... Honestly, we, we obviously we, take that on board. We were all so hyped for it. Everyone yeah, was really we were. A new Dracula movie and then I just know. nothing. Snatched away <laughs> from our grass. Yeah. I'm so sorry because yeah. uh, I, f- I feel guilty now. I've seen it three times. Oh, <laughs> oh rub salt I, in the yeah. wound. Why don't I'm you? sorry, but I'll tell you what happened. <laughs> so a friend of mine, um, Aaron Seegers, who does here in America, who does a lot of interviewing, goes to a lot of conventions, a wonderful interviewer, does a lot of research, has been with me to Romania, uh, Transylvania, Valaki once uh, on fact finding missions. Um, he was being interviewed or he was interviewing, excuse me, the director. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, you really should get Dacre Stoker's input on this. You know, he's influential in the field and so on. And so Universal, NBC Universal Films shot me an e- email and said, how about a private screening? And I said, whoa, I've never wow. been asked that before. Wow, and they said, yeah, incredible. we can we can get a, a theater near you and, and you and you know 10 or 15 of your friends could go. Oh wow. So four days before it was released in America this past August, and, and I did hear all the hype around the world, and unfortunately I did hear about unfortunately the, the UK rights problem. Um I was sitting with 12 of my friends who wow. at very short notice drove from all over the place to come in and sit with me and watch the film oh they're, they're then, good friends <laughs> they were good friends because uh, i didn't want to do it alone yeah and a couple i had two friends who were uh, uh, writers for newspapers they came and we had a you know, little chat afterwards what we all felt and th- and then uh i had some friends come over uh coke a co-author who i'm working with on another story and we decided to watch it streaming here in america and then just recently, I was in uh, Timisoara, Romania, for a film festival where they wow. had it to be screened, and I introduced the film. But, wow. but here's the here's the short version uh, that, without any spoiler, is you know it's difficult to 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 adapt a film to a chapter of a book that many people have read and already mm. know the ending. Right. Yes. I mean, if you already know what happens, everybody you're gonna dies. Have, you're going to have to know something special. Yeah. And they did. They did a good job with it. And and definitely Whitby does get name checked, Tara. So you'll be happy. Although they did you know they had to change a few things because Brand didn't leave too much. Mm. Um, in, mm. He didn't write a lot about it in the novel. But what he did write was the names of the crewmen yeah. who were mentioned did get name checked in the film. Um, so, but to me, it is very suspenseful. And as somebody said, it's like the film Alien, but in a ship. Wow. It's claustrophobic. Oh, wow. It's, it's, there are jump scares. There's not a ton of CGI. Apparently, they had to build a massive set in Malta to do the ship oh, wow. scenes, which most of it is on. Um, and, and the actor that played Dracula, incredible costume. And they did something like good versions of the novel do, whereas you don't see the monster a lot. You hear him, you see shadows of him, and when you do see him, it's just for a couple of seconds here or there. So it really is like Alien, yeah. Yeah, and it's not like the 92 Coppola film who you sort of get to know the guy or the Netflix 
um, BBC co-pro where you get to see the guy and get to know Clay Spang. This yeah. is that scary thing that is no question a monster. And and what I what I found interesting about it, and maybe when you guys do get to see mm. the film, we can come back and chat about this. Oh, I'd love that, yeah. It didn't do great in the box office because people were saying, oh, I wanted to see a Dracula like Gary Oldman. I wanted to get to know the Dracula. <laughs> and yet the hardcore folks like like myself That's been done <laughs> it's been done yeah. let's let's see a real monster and go back to the back to the black you know back yeah. to the revenant that dark guy that brent that made so yeah sorry you haven't seen it and any of your listeners haven't seen it look for it it might come out on streaming or be available who knows oh, i really but it's worth so. the wait when it comes out yeah i mean but... you don't actually really see a lot of dracula himself in the book do you <laughs> very true so... yeah <laughs> <laughs> he exists in the minds of the characters and that's yeah. where he's the scariest because he's a manifestation of yeah. everything going on Absolutely. in Mina's mind, in Lucy's mind, in Jonathan who's had the personal experience and he's traumatized. You know, he's a little bit of, of all of the things that people are scared about. Yes. And then yeah. of course it takes half the book for Van Helsing to come out and tell everybody, yeah. you know, yeah. there's that vampire here. What? <laughs> Yeah, we spent a whole episode just on Lucy, more or less, didn't we, Tara? We did. Yeah, we did. There's a lot to dissect and talk about, isn't there, with, with Lucy? Um, so just to ask the final question, Dacre. So um, obviously you mentioned earlier on that you've got a little upcoming tour of Whitby. Uh, do you want to just share how people can book to come along? Yeah, thank you. Um, to, to me, literary legacy tours are to me, just really cool and give people an opportunity. You know, as Chris talks about, I know people go to New Zealand to check out where the Lord of the Rings was filmed. I, I've seen people in Rome checking out Da Vinci Code and, and, and Angels and Demons, you know, the yeah. different sites. And so far, I've been doing this for about three years now with a company called Experience-Transylvania. Uh, Experience-Transylvania.com is their website. Uh, we've started taking people to sites in Romania, so Wallachia and Transylvania, to see the sites where Dracula took place, based on Bram's very detailed research, mm. uh, as well as Vlad the Impaler. Where did he impale people? Where did he live? Where was he born? All that. Mm. And and now I've started expanding to Whitby to, you know, we, we basically make it easy for people. You can fly into Manchester or London and meet in York. So we spend a night and a day in York, because even though there's not much to do with Dracula there, it's, oh, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. Yeah. It's such a cool place. And I'm, I'm actually very haunted. A, <laughs> oh, there's some great, great stuff there. I love the dungeon. Yeah. Uh, we go visit that. Um, and, and I'm also a, a, a fan of um, Uthred and last kingdom. Oh, so I love yeah. wandering around. And, and so we, yeah. we actually do a day there. Cause you can't just come and go from, from York. No. Yeah. And, You've got to go to Jorvik if you go to York. Yeah. <laughs> We go to uh, Robin Hood's Bay next, which oh, is only about an, 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 beautiful yeah, it, place. It's part of it's part of the Dracula lore. Bram and yeah. and Florence and and Noel walk there. Went to the Bay Hotel for tea, and of course Bram has Lucy and Mina and Mrs. Westerner go for tea at the Bay Hotel. We do that. We read an excerpt from the story right there. Everybody gets filmed doing oh. it, and then we go to Whitby where you know we wander around and we actually go to the Whitby Museum, which is a new location where I give one of my lectures there, all about Bram's time. 
we, we hire a local guide, Dr. Crank, who's a good friend of mine, who takes us around and gives us the history, the things that I don't necessarily know about, mm. about whaling history, uh, about all the sort of sailing adventures. Uh, and I, I insert the Dracula stuff. We obviously go to the Whitby Brewery, uh, the, the uh, up and down the 199 steps. Ah. We see Whitby Jet Museum. Um, and the locals come out in all their garb for a nice dinner that we have um, to commemorate the 100, this year, 20, 127th anniversary. And um, then we go back to uh, York and then people head back to Manchester. So it's a five-day trip. We also will alternate each year. And instead of going to Whitby next year, we'll go to Cruden Bay, Scotland, which ah, is would you the yeah, Edinburgh, yeah. Aberdeen, Cruden Bay. That's where Bram actually wrote the novel. Yeah. And that's where uh, Slane's castle is that he used for part of his Dracula's castle. So we flip-flop between Whitby and Cruden Bay each year. And then we also, every year we do the Transylvania thing. So if you're interested in sort of literary legacy and kind of living this book, um, you know, con contact experience-transylvania.com and it's all on their website. I think Tara, hopefully you'll join us. Maybe yes, for, maybe I'm for tea at, somewhere. That would be well, great for the day yeah. or whatever. Well, I was yeah. hoping to take you for tea and cake in York as well, well maybe, maybe we do that because uh <laughs> I, that would be fun and we can catch up on anything else dracula that we haven't chatted yeah, about exactly. so far exactly i mean yeah. it's just been an absolute pleasure dacre thank you so much for taking the time out to join us and sharing some incredible facts with us i mean i'm blown away i think it's going to take me about an hour to get over <laughs> this conversation <laughs> the things i've learned so thank you well thank you for your interest and, and again you guys do such a great job you know, with all books, you know, so that most of them all start with books, don't they? Yeah. Until they get to the yeah, screen. Absolutely. And that's a nice homage to writers who, who put a lot of imagination into it. And then we hand it on to screenwriters who hopefully do as good a job to put it onto the screen. So thank you for your work and attention to that and, and bringing that information to people on how all these things start and especially your interest in Dracula. So thank you and your readers for your interest in my great granduncle's work. Thank you so much. Thank you. The scene where she's in the bedroom and she takes off her crucifix and puts it in the bedside mm. table or the, the dresser and you know throws open the window and then lies in the bed and waits. I mean, that film, yes. that that scene, I think changed everything. It did, it did, and I, I think it kind of highlights the uh, the sort of throwing away of the morals you know the symbolism yes. that we see within the book as well you know obviously we're talking about Lucy being a, um, not being a moralistic mm, girl mm. Um, and that kind of goes back you know and is shown in this film she willingly takes off her crucifix she yeah. willingly opens the window she's lying there she's waiting she wants him to come to her and take her and like you say, that changes everything from that point on, doesn't it? Yeah. Because there's... she, she's not a victim. She's, she wants no. it. She's, yeah. She wants to change. 
You've just heard an extract from our conversation on uh, the Hammer 1958 Dracula, or Horror of Dracula, as it was in the US. To hear us talk even more about Dracula, Hammer Horror, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash from page to screen podcast for bonus Dracula content and we'll be posting regular monthly bonus episodes on there tangential to the main feed. Thanks once again to our guest this week, Dacre Stoker, great grandnephew of Bram Stoker himself. How exciting. Well, if you're joining us for the first time on this episode, uh, then welcome to From Page to Scream. Uh, if you want to hear us talk even more about Dracula, make sure you check out our previous three episodes in which, as we've discussed, we go into a real deep dive and analysis uh, of the original novel and compare it to some of the more famous film adaptations. We've had an awesome time getting our teeth stuck into Dracula and really hope that you have too. Join us again next week, where we'll be moving on to discuss another titan of the gothic literary canon in the terrifying form of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to From Page to Scream wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at frompagetoscream.podcast, on Facebook at From Page to Scream, or you can always email us at fptspodcast at gmail.com. 